Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Rationality, once revered, has had a bad press. It is increasingly described as the rhetorical bluster of the educated elite, typically powerful and male. Yet, in its absence, public debate becomes even more rancorous and tribal. Should we see rationality as a method for positive change? Or is rationality a rhetorical delusion, a means of dressing up privilege and power? Joining us to debate whether rationality is a delusion, our eminent philosopher of mind and psychology, Sophie Archer, groundbreaking Oxford logician Timothy Williamson, and trailblazing cultural critic Nina Power. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Marianne Sinkhart. Thank you very much, everyone, and thank you for coming to what promises to be a really fascinating debate with a great group of panelists whom I will introduce in a minute. But first of all, just to talk about the theme of the debate. Rationality, which was once revered, has had a bit of a bad press. It's increasingly derided as the rhetorical bluster of an educated elite, most typically white and male. And as a prejudiced claim of those who are sure that they're in the right. Yet in the absence of reason, public debate risks becoming ever more rancorous and tribal. So do we need less emotion, more calm, and more rational conversation and debate? Should we see rationality as a method for positive change and a mechanism for good decision-making? Or is rationality, in fact, a rhetorical delusion, a means of dressing up privilege and power, which should be seen for what it is, a defense of the vested interests it seeks to hide? Well. Let's ask all these speakers. I'm going to introduce them all. Nina Power is a cultural critic, social theorist, philosopher, and translator, formerly a senior lecturer in philosophy at Roehampton University. Nina's interests are in philosophy, art, feminism, and politics. Timothy Williamson, I'm allowed to call him Tim, apparently, is the Wickham Professor of Logic at the University of Oxford. His most eminent works include The Philosophy of Philosophy and Knowledge and Its Limits. That's very meta. <laughs> and Sophie Archer is a distinguished academic specializing in the philosophy of mind, psychology, and epistemology. She was the Robin Geffen Research Fellow and Tutor in Philosophy at the University of Oxford and now lectures at the University of Cardiff. So a three-minute pitch from each of them. Because they're all academics, I've decided to say to them, we've got to define our terms. What do we mean by rationality? <laughs> Tim, over to you. Well, I think some philosophers have a rather narrow conception of rationality as 
sort of based on calculation, some kind of formal consistency. And that seems to me way too narrow and a very inadequate way of thinking what it is. I mean, the way I think of rationality, it's some kind of openness to getting new evidence and disposition to, to act and to form beliefs in ways that are appropriate given your evidence. And, and that's, that's something that, that I would see as coming in degrees, uh, so that you know, adults are, are typically more rational than two-year-old children. The two-year-old children are not totally lacking in, uh, in rationality. And I would even think of r rationality as something that can be found in, you know, in somewhat primitive forms in, in many non-human uh, animals. I mean, so, so that, for example, you know, when you, you think of a predator hunting a prey, I mean, they, they're both typically, you know, they've got to be able to, to act in some way in the light of their evidence. I mean, their evidence ab about where the other animal is and about, you know, about wh where, what there is in their environment, stuff to hide behind and all that, those kind of things. And, you know, so if they're, if they were acting in uh, completely irrational ways, which paid no attention to their evidence, they're not likely to withstand the test of evolution for very long. So this is, it's actually a, an extremely widespread phenomenon over a whole range of species. Of course, with human rationality, we've got We've got language, and we can use language to reflect in explicit sort of ways about our evidence, and 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 that enables us to be to be rational in in much more sophisticated ways to to recognise you know the ways in in which our sort of initial instincts may may actually be mistaken, and then we can correct them. And so that's an, as it were an extra layer of rationality that that we have that isn't available in the same way to creatures that don't have language. But basically, we're just talking about different levels of something that is extremely widespread amongst living creatures. Great, thank you, Nina. I guess, first of all, I'd say that everybody thinks, and I'd be very wary of anyone who would <laughs> say otherwise. And in that sense, I think we have to understand that everybody has reasons for the claims that they make. And I think it's often very disingenuous when we seek to present our opponents, if you like, as being motivated by extra rational concerns alone. So, and this often happens in particularly emotive debates where we seek to assert that the other person is motivated by something malicious, they're motivated by hate, perhaps. Whereas if you actually want to have a dialogue with somebody, you have to assume something like the principle of charity, which is that basically the person argument has they have good reasons for why they're claiming what they claim and you argue against that and I think we need to have more of an understanding of the sort of necessity and reality of dialogue and the fact that people give different reasons for different positions and that everybody thinks is a basically a fundamental axiom at the same time I think it's very difficult to think for oneself even though that seems very obvious that this is something we all grant ourselves, um, it's actually very difficult to uh, find out sometimes what it is that we actually think about the particular issue. We're surrounded by opinion and doctor and kind of a whole confusing array of information. And it often takes time to work through an idea or an argument. And I think reason is one of those things that helps us to think it's not everything. I do think, though, that reason and emotion, for example, shouldn't be opposed. If you read someone like Spinoza, 
he says that basically emotion and this, these ideas that, of these kind of feelings, that they're also amenable to comprehension so that we can actually get a bigger picture of why we feel the way we do, why we feel, for example, envy towards someone, why we feel confusion in another context. We can actually access reason to talk about emotion. So I wouldn't necessarily oppose reason and emotion either. I would say that a narrow image of rationality, for example, the idea that human beings are only fundamentally calculating, for example, like economic rationality, is not the sum total of how we think about things. And so I would also defend the idea of reason as having a speculative element, which is to say, asking questions that we can't immediately answer, maybe asking questions that are very grandiose, asking questions about the cosmos, about the nature of our soul, uh, about whether God exists or not, whether our soul is immortal. You know, Kant talks about reason as basically pushing us to ask questions that we can't answer. So I think reason also has this kind of uh, cosmic, speculative, philosophical dimension. And it's not always going to be able to solve those questions, but it kind of pushes us to ask them. And in that sense, I think it's very, it's something very beautiful and something that we can engage in together in dialogue. And this is, in a way, what philosophical dialogue is all about, is reasoning together. It's not something that we can necessarily only do on our own, even at the same time as we want to try to understand what it is that we actually think about any particular issue. So I think there should be more reason. I think that everyone has reason. I think that everyone can give reasons. And we should be able to talk about everything that matters to us without being shut down. So you're using reason as a synonym for rationality here? Um, yeah, I mean, if there are. we could talk about complicated definitions, but yes, Lovely. let's say, for the sake of this conversation. Yeah. OK, great, <laughs> yeah. thank you. Sophie? So I think that sometimes by rationality, people mean something like responding well to reasons. And if that's what we mean by rationality, then I think that it's pretty clear that human beings don't do that most of the time. <laughs> In fact, we're kind of notoriously irrational. So, you know, we believe things because we want to believe them rather than because the evidence suggests that they're true. So apparently 90-some percent of people believe that they're more beautiful and more intelligent than average, um, which <laughs> And better drivers, too. <laughs> yeah, which obviously can't be true for all of us. And we're also massively practically irrational as well. So, you know, we sincerely resolve to give up smoking and then half an hour later we're lighting up the next cigarette, right? So. We're massively irrational. So if by rationality we mean something like responding well to reasons, then I think it's clear that we're not very rational for the most part in that sense. However, there's another sense of rationality, I think, where it is more reasonable to say that we are rational, which is that we have the capacity to respond to reasons, right? If by being rational we mean that someone has the capacity to, to respond to reasons, then ironically enough, all of that irrationality only serves to establish that we are rational in that other sense, right? That we have the capacity to respond to reasons because we wouldn't be able to be irrational. That is to say, we wouldn't be able to exercise that capacity poorly unless we had that capacity. So that's the distinction between two senses of rationality. And I'll leave it there for now, I think. OK, good. Well, yeah. thanks very much, all of you. We're, we're going to start with the first question, which is, is rationality essential to human thought? So I think I might come back to you, Tim. Sophie's just posited that most of us are irrational most of the time. <laughs> we're still thinking. Yeah. Is it essential to human thought? Well, it's certainly 
possible to think in very irrational ways and indeed common. I mean, you know, I, I, for example, you know, Donald Trump thinking that a good way to deal with the coronavirus is by injecting yourself with disinfectant. That's, that, that I take it is a pretty irrational thought. And so in, in that sense, you know, it's possible to, to think irrationally and, co and in common. But I don't think that, that and I, th I don't think actually I'm disagreeing with Sophie, that you could that you could have these irrational thoughts without some rational capacity. And, you know, in fact, that, that idea about injecting yourself with disinfectant, I mean, we might be quite impressed if a three-year-old thought of it. So that, you know, it, it might be as, as you know, r rational by the standards of three-year-olds, if not by adult standards. And, and so, for example, it seems to me that, you know, unless there is somebody present who wandered in completely by accident, everybody present in this room has exercised rationality simply in, you know, managing to navigate this far. And so I think it's actually, it's not that most of our thinking is irrational. It seems to me that as we're, most of the time we're being rational because we're just exercising our rational capacities in very, very kind of boring everyday ways which just don't stand out because they're so commonplace. And it's the instances of irrationality which really stand out. But they stand out because they're somewhat unusual in the sense that that's not the way that we're, we're thinking most of the the time. With the emphasis on somewhat there. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sophie, yeah. Do, you, do you think it's essential to human thought? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing, when I read this question in preparation for this, one thing that kind of struck me here was the word essential. So philosophers, there's a kind of catchphrase, an Aristotelian catchphrase that philosophers sometimes bandy around, which is the idea that humans are essentially rational animals. And I think one way of understanding that idea is to think of rationality not as a capacity exactly. So I was talking first of all about exercising your capacity well, so responding to reasons well as being one sense of what it means to be rational. And then the second sense was having the capacity to respond to reasons whether you do it well or poorly. I think there's another sense here, which is to deny that rationality is really a capacity to respond to reasons exactly, or at least it's not a kind of isolable capacity that you can kind of add on top of all the other capacities that human beings have, like to do stuff and to believe things or just take away from all those other capacities and leaving those other capacities kind of essentially unchanged. Rather, the idea is that what it is to be rational, according to this definition, rationality kind of infuses all of our capacities. It's the way that we have all of our other capacities. We have them in a rational way. So although, yes, you know, a two-year-old can do something, I can do something, in a sense, even a tree could do something, right? You know, the tree grows a new branch or something. And we might talk about the tree doing something there. But the sense in which the tree does something is quite different to the sense in which I do something. And the idea that I'm an essentially rational animal is supposed to mark that difference by saying, yeah, the way you do something is in this rational way. And that rational kind of infuses everything, all of your capacities. And that's why it's essential to you. So you can't just take it away and leave you, you know, kind of roughly unchanged. If you take it away, you haven't got anything like the same being there anymore. But have you got um, anything left? Can you have human thoughts without rationality, <laughs> even if it's not much? Good question. I mean, there are... So, Tim, I think you think that it's essential to all thought, rationality. Yes, I, I think any, any, cre any creature which you can interpret 
if you can interpret as having thoughts at all. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with actually with what Nina was saying about that you need, as it were, some kind of principle of of charity to make sense of it. And so I, you know, I think. If, if you had zero rationality, you'd be talking about something that was more like just kind of random excitations of the, the brain, and, and that just isn't thought. Yes, yeah, yeah. But there could be presumably a particular instance of thought that was associative thought or something like that, or instinctual, instinctual yes, yes, non-rational, yes. but it's had in the context of a rational mind. Is that the idea? I think, if, yeah, if, I mean, because if it's a thought, it's a thought about something. I mean, it's got some kind of content. To it, and and you can't really make sense of you know what the content would be with without actually being able to see it as part of some kind of wider pattern mm. of, that was connecting all the different things going on in this okay. this brain. And I think that's going to involve some some level of charity and kind of understanding the, these thoughts as in some way making sense. And that's going to bring in some kind of minimal level of mm. rationality. Mm. Nina. I mean, I think, again, to break out of a narrow definition of rationality and maybe talk about reason. So maybe I'm slightly expanding rationality to mean reason. And, and in that sense, as I say, it would also include going beyond the strictly logical or calculative, right? So that, that reason has this sort of, I don't know, grandiose aspect. Because, and the reason I say that <laughs> is because a purely, for example, rational society, one that would be dominated by, let's say, one image of reason, would be a nightmare, right? So there's a sense in which rationality, especially if it's used in a kind of domineering way, and often, you know, we have to say historically, some people have been excluded from the realm of reason, you know, which I think was in your opening remarks implicitly, you know, the idea that some people only act out of emotion, or obviously, as I've said, emotion are also amenable to reasons too. So we shouldn't oppose emotion and reason. But at the same time, it's, it's, you know, to oppose a narrow image of rationality is also to oppose the lack of freedom that, that can come from a particularly oppressive idea about what the right thing to do is. So I would like to say that reason and thought are coterminous, but reason itself pushes us to think about things in an open-ended way, right? So it's on the side of freedom, if you like. So it's sort of necessary but not sufficient is what you're saying. You need the, a sort of underpinning of reason, but it leads you to so much more. Yeah, the, the reason is not a closed system, basically. Yeah. Well, let's move on to what you were just hinting at there, which is, so our second question is much broader than what we've just been talking about, which is, is rationality actually a rhetorical delusion, a means of dressing up power and privilege? Because that's just what you were just starting on there. It has sometimes been used by particularly privileged elites, you know, white men telling black women that they're just angry <laughs> rather than being rational and complaining about their treatment, for instance. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we can look at that hypothetical or real situation and say, you know, people have good reason to be angry, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, obviously. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, but that's why I want to say that, you know, we should defend reason. We shouldn't give up on it, right? I'm not, I'm, because otherwise you're saying that there is no thought, there is no way in which we can all discuss things, there is no dialogue possible. There are only competing interests and, and you know, sort of chaotic emotions, right? So you know, at the same time to recognize the, the, the history of the use of that word as sometimes oppressive and narrow isn't to give up on it completely, you know? And I, th I think when we get situations of public discussion where one side is saying there's no debate and the other side is saying there's something to talk about, you know, we have a problem that's a structural problem of, you know, the use and misuse of the limits of reason. And I think everybody and every, you know, everybody thinks everybody has reasons for their positions, even people we hate and even people we disagree with have reasons for their position. 
and we have to accept that. I mean, this is a fundamental liberal principle. We don't have to be liberals to accept that, but I think it's bigger than that. I think it's, it's a human thing. You know, and it's too easy to say of our purported opponent that they're not thinking, that they're just filled with hate or they're irrational. You know, and this is absolutely, uh, we get nowhere with that assertion. So it's, it's really just a sort of rhetorical device to silence your opponents. I'm being rational, you're just being well, emotional. Well, I, I suppose I'm saying paradoxically, it's the, it's the other way around. It's like saying, some people are saying some things aren't amenable to reason and they shouldn't be, so we can't discuss them. Yeah. So, yeah. But I'm saying we need more, more discussion, not less. Yes. <laughs> Sophie? I would agree with that, definitely. <laughs> I think complicated kind of argumentative moves can obviously be used by the powerful to sort of bamboozle the less privileged or those who are less practiced at, at reasoning. But I think that that's not a problem that, that's kind of inherent in rationality itself. It's a problem inherent in the power structure, right? And what we can see there, I think, is that part of changing the power structure is going to be better education, better practice uh, at reasoning. Um, but that's not a particularly new thought. <laughs> but I know that you're interested in implicit bias. Yes, yeah. And so mm -hmm. we do often think that we're acting utterly rationally. So, for instance, I know in the research for a book I've just written that 70% of men will evaluate a man more highly than a woman for achieving exactly the same goals. Yeah. Now, those men probably think they're behaving entirely rationally and genuinely think that the man is better than the woman. Mm. But their implicit bias is deluding mm. them. Yeah, indeed. I think that happens, right? Yeah. Um, so how, They're how... irrational insofar as they're presumably unconsciously influenced by whatever these forces at work are. So how can we learn to but think and behave more rationally when we all <laughs> suffer from these implicit or unconscious biases? Yeah, well, so... <laughs> Which often do privilege the more powerful and... Yeah, that's powerful. kind of the million-dollar question, really, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, one thing I think that the research has shown is that kind of affirming positive associations works better than trying to disaffirm negative ones. So affirming, you know the connection between woman and work or woman and academia or something works better than trying to, you know, think not man and academia or something like that. Who knows what the ultimate explanation of that is. But yeah, I mean, I think basically the question as to how we can get better in these ways is an empirical question for the psychologists, right? Yeah, but actually the rational thing might be to question our own rationality. Yeah, I, I think we do, you know, we need to constantly be aware <laughs> that we may be falling into all kinds of traps. Yes. Um, but that's just, that's what it is to think and discuss well, I think. To, that's part of what it is, to bear that stuff in mind. So, Tim yes. is the white male on the panel. <laughs> uh, yeah, in a difficult position. <laughs> well, I mean, one thing I'd just say is that every genuine value can be abused. I mean, so, that, for example, kindness and justice, presumably these are genuine values, but they can also be abused because people can pretend that what they're doing is kind or just when it isn't, and they can pretend that they're better at doing acts of kindness or justice than, than other people when, when they're not. So that I think, you know, given that rationality is a good thing, we should also not be in the least surprised that it also gets abused by anybody who can get away with it, but yeah. roughly. I, just one thing about the idea that everybody has reasons for what they're, they're doing. I mean, I think sometimes, you know, it is appropriate to say to somebody, 
you had no reason to do that. You know, if somebody comes up and just punches me in the in the face, you know, I might say you have no reason to to do that. I mean, and it doesn't mean that that they don't have some kind of story they could tell about, you know, what an annoying person I am or, or, or something like that. But it wasn't, it wasn't really a reason to, to do it. I think sometimes the danger is that there's a kind of ambiguity in reason because it, sometimes it means a genuine reason and sometimes it just means something that the person regards as a reason to do it, but isn't a genuine reason to, to do it. And that's one of the ways in which it's, it's actually hard to know whether you're you're being rational sometimes because it's hard to tell the difference between you know a genuine reason and something that just feels to you like a, a reason because that actually partly depends on what you know about the world and what, what you don't. It, it isn't something that you can as well just get your pocket calculator and work whether something mm. work out whether something is a genuine reason. Okay, so so here's an example which I might put to both of you two. I was hosting a debate earlier today about the pandemic and risk. And someone might quite legitimately say, I don't want to have the AstraZeneca jab because there's a four in a million chance that I might get a blood clot on the brain and die. But if you don't have the jab and you catch COVID, there's a 150,000 chance in a million that you'll get a blood clot. <laughs> So is that person being rational and giving a good reason for not having the jab? Well, I mean, yes. It's a reason, so far but as they is it a reasons. rational yeah, reason? Yeah, I mean, you know, and the point is not to stop at someone giving reasons. The point is, you know, to exercise principle of discernment and dialogue, right? So it's like saying, you know, everybody changes their mind. Everybody gets things wrong, right? We listen to all kinds of different people. Right, we have a category of people called experts, who many people don't trust for good reason. We also have a government that admits to using fear as a manipulative tactic in order to get people to do what it wants. And you could say that people have good reason not to trust the government, therefore, right? And a lot of people don't. <laughs> so you know what I mean? I think it's just the beginning of it. To say that everybody has reasons for their position is just the beginning of a discussion that might involve people changing their mind. It might involve you changing your mind. It's trying to look at as much kind of evidence and, you know, working things through rather than kind of just asserting a position over and over again. And even in the punch in the face situation, there might not be a good reason, I give you, but there would be a reason that that person might be high on drugs, they might be very angry about something else, you might randomly have walked in a way that annoyed them, right? These are all bad reasons and you should not be punched in the face, right? Are they irrational reasons? as well as bad reasons. I think that's what I'm trying to get at. I don't know if the irrational reasons make yeah. sense. No, so bad reasons. Okay. You know, they're, they're, they're bad yeah. reasons. And we might say, you know, when, when people cross those lines, then we start talking about harm and criminality. And, you know, there are certain, obviously, actions that are criminalised. But, I mean, you know, in a way, pathologically, you can see reason everywhere. I mean, this is... But there are better and worse reasons, and the principle of discernment is what we hope to get through dialogue. But I mean, I mean, I think sometimes the word reason is just being used to mean cause. And if it was that because they were high on drugs, I mean, that was simply the cause of their doing it. And and you can ask, you know, what was the reason why the volcano yeah, exactly. erupted? But that, <laughs> but I mean, that doesn't mean that the volcano is a little bit rational because it, you know, there's a reason why it, it erupted. Do a and, <laughs> well, yeah. yeah but, <laughs> But I think when we're talking about reasons that make people rational, they're reasons you know, for which they did it rather than just why they did it. And the, the person who was high on drugs, that wasn't a reason for which they, they punched me in the face. It was just that that was why they did it. I mean, there's always a reason why they did it in the sense you can give some kind of psychological explanation. But that doesn't always mean that their story 
uh, was a good one. I mean, for example, you know, they they, they might they, they might have punched me in the face because they thought that you know, I was a lizard in human form that, that was, you know, involved in some vast well, are you? conspiracy. <laughs> well, well, I leave the side. But it wasn't that that was a really a piece of evidence. I mean, that was just yeah. some wacky thought that they, they had in their, their head. Whereas in the, in the kind of vaccination case, sometimes what you have are people who have actually got hold of genuine facts. They haven't actually got the statistics wrong, but then what they're doing is, is using genuine facts to, to with some kind of very, very shaky leap to a conclusion that is only, you know, that these facts don't really w warrant. And then that's, you know, they, so they do have some, they're working on the basis of evidence, but they're simply misinterpreting their evidence. And, and th these are all, you know, not things that it's so easy to, to monitor yourself about. It's quite easy to be deceived about whether one's doing these, this kind of thinking well or badly. You talked about how people are starting to mistrust experts more. And I wonder why you think that is, why rationality seems to be taking a smaller part of public discourse than perhaps it did 10 or 15 years ago. Well, I think if you don't trust that the people who are supposed to be leading you are acting rationally and they admit that they're not, then you've got less reason to trust them in who, general. Who admits they're not acting rationally? Well, I mean, the government have explicitly said, for example, that they made people fearful, i.e. they played upon their non-rational animal aspect of their nature in order to get them to behave in particular ways. What, over the pandemic? Yeah, well, it's not. It's not irrational to be fearful of COVID, sure. No, but it is not treating people as rational agents in the same way as you think of yourself if you basically make people afraid by exaggerating things, by kind of coercing them into doing things, and not giving them adequate reasons, right? Other countries had different ways of dealing with the, the situation, and they were much more honest and rational, and they kind of allowed people to have discussions and sort of make up their own minds in certain ways. Whereas a kind of government that rules by fear, by promoting fear, is doing something else. It's not behaving in a, in a way that respects the rational capacity of its own citizens. And I think we did see that. They, they openly admitted that they use fear tactics. Just saying. <laughs> Okay, so our third question, and we might be sort of moving towards that in what you've just been saying, is might the era of reason turn out to be a passing phase in human history? I mean, we haven't talked about the Enlightenment, but the sort of worship of rationality really came about, I think, during the Enlightenment and has stayed with us since. Is that just a one-way bet, or could we go backwards? <laughs> well, I think, I mean, it's perfectly possible that we could go backwards, unfortunately. Of course, I'm using a value judgment by saying backwards. Sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm affirming it by repeating it. <laughs> I mean, you know, if we look at certain parts of the world, Afghanistan is the, you know, example that kind of unfortunately immediately springs to mind. You know, it's not so clear that we're on some kind of upward trajectory that will continue in the same direction. I don't know. But again, I think that's kind of an empirical question. I, I don't know, basically, is the honest answer to that. Yeah. Tim, what do you think? Well, I, I agree. I mean, you know, in, in, during the French Revolution, they, they used to have festivals of rationality and in play, you know, to take the place of, of religious festivals. I mean, I don't know how much fun they were, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like this, basically, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this is a festival of, of rationality. So I think, you know, when people talk about the the age of reason that probably they do have in mind something like an you know an age when 
secular rationality played a, a sort of bigger role in the way decisions were made and the way people thought than at sort of most periods in human history, something of that kind. And, and maybe that, that has been true of the, of the, the, the last 250 years or, or something. But yeah, I mean, it, philosophy can't give any guarantee whatsoever that it's going to continue that way. I mean, most, as it were, trends in history don't, well, they can't go on forever in, in that direction. And so it, it's perfectly possible that as we're just as far as the philosophical considerations go, that we're, you know, in a hundred years, the, the world will be completely dominated by the worst kind of religious fundamentalism. Well, I mean, it's interesting that you've, we've set up rationality against religion, both in the sense of the Enlightenment was a secular sort of movement against religion, and in Afghanistan, it's religion that's taking us back away from rationality. Should these two always be in opposition? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, to take the example of Kant, who's one of the greatest Enlightenment thinkers, I mean, even he says that we have to limit reason to make room for faith. You know, and I think there is a problem. If you set up reason as a new god, you're going to end up executing people because it's the rational thing to do, right? <laughs> it's, it's, you know, reason is perhaps best thought of as something like a, a method rather than a kind of golden calf that we should worship in place of God. It's very, very hard to get rid of religious structures, right? Human beings want to believe in something, right? And, and if, you, if you take away God, something else will go in its place. And I think what Kant and other Enlightenment thinkers who were more subtle were trying to do was trying to balance, if you like, those different tendencies and almost like temptations that human beings collectively, let's say, suffer from. So I think a combination of reason and reason in particular domains, the political domain, for example, alongside a kind of, I don't know, openness. This is what liberalism tried to do, leave open room for faith in a particular way so that people could have their own individual faith or be part of things without being kind of subsumed into some dystopian, purely rational vision, rationalist vision in the narrow sense of that idea. You know, and when people have tried to run rationalist societies, they always end up as like horrible homogenous hellholes, you know. <laughs> so we shouldn't do that either. So some sort of nice balance. <laughs> I want an example of one of those. Yeah, <laughs> a rational society that was a horrible hellhole. Well, I, I suppose <laughs> the French Revolution. Uh, right, yeah, okay. <laughs> a bit of a hellhole. <laughs> yeah, the terror. I mean, the terror flows from yeah. a definition of reason in a certain way. You know, it's practical reason if you want to look at it one way. You know, what do you do with people who are your enemies? You you kill them. <laughs> yeah. That's a rational answer. Do you think... <laughs> <laughs> Nina before was saying that quite often rationality is set up against emotion, re or reason against emotion, and saying that this didn't, that, you know, that actually you can synthesize the two. Do, do you think we can synthesize the two? So an example you used was, you know, you can have a reason to be angry, right? I mean, there's certainly... That's certainly true, I think. You know, there are lots of emotions. Well, I'm, I hesitate to say all emotions, but certainly we can easily think of examples of emotional responses that we can, that reasons can be provided for. A kind of cogent, rational story can be given as to why this person feels this emotion. So that in itself, just that one fact, kind of suggests that there isn't a sort of, you know, cut and dried dichotomy here. Although there is something that people are kind of, 
it's, it seems like there's probably something that people are trying to get at with the reason be emotion. I mean, it's another one of these kind of dichot big dichotomies, isn't it? And clearly there, there can be a difference between, you know, lashing out in rage versus a considered response. I suppose that's the, the kind of difference in reaction that people are interested in when they draw that contrast. So that exists, but it's also true that people can have reasons and good reasons for being angry. And, <laughs> I think it's complicated. And actually a, a cold a cold anger could lead to a very considered yeah. revenge, couldn't <laughs> Indeed. it? Indeed. So it's yeah. lashing out more than yeah. the anger, isn't it? Yeah. That stops your brain perhaps working rationally. Yes, yeah. But I suppose we think of anger as having, you know, an effective, I mean, it has an effective component, right? It feels a certain way to be angry. And that can or typically does drive us towards lashing out, even though we can suppress it. I think it's not just that sometimes, you know, it's rational to feel fear or to feel hope or, or whatever, but it's also that emotions in some way can actually make us think better. I mean, so a kind of crude example of that would be, you know, if somebody feels burning curiosity about something, I mean, that's some kind of emotion, but it's also it's an emotion that is going to drive them to think much harder about it. And so it's actually going to bring their rational capacities into play in a more effective way. I mean, I noticed this, you know, with teaching that if, you know, if you present some kind of debate in philosophy as, you know, well, it doesn't really matter who wins here. And, you know, and, and the, the, some people thought this, some people thought that, you know, take your pick. I mean, that's, that's not really a good way of getting students interested in actually thinking about the topic. I mean, you know, it, in a way, it helps if you think of philosophical debates and in, in terms of sort of goodies and baddies, even to some extent, because, because it makes you makes you start thinking about, of every move in the debate as, you know, either, you know, a, a threat or, you know, a hope or, or whatever. And, you know, so that it actually forces you to think harder and more rationally about what's going on. And, you know, so that, as you were, you know, a, a state of complete emotional indifference is not really a good state for, for thinking uh, rationally about anything that's hard to think about. Mm. And indeed, you know, in our own research, it's that kind of investment in the answers that, that moves us often, right? You know, I, I'm in print defending this position. They can't be right. I have to. It moves you to, you know, think harder, think more creatively, perhaps sometimes as well. You yes. Know, and, it facilitates right. rationality. Yeah. And I, th I think yeah. in some way, you know, collectively, it can, it can also lead to greater rationality because you have different people who are commit emotionally committed to different sides. I mean, you know, Max Planck is supposed to have said once that the uh, progress in uh, in science is, is measured by funerals. And, <laughs> and what he meant was that that scientists tend to be, the, you know, who sort of be, supposed to be sort of paradigms of rationality, they tend to be so committed to whatever research program they're involved in that they, they actually never admit that it was it was wrong. But all that happens is that graduate students don't want to work with them because you know other people who are less committed can see that they're just in a dead end. And so you get this kind of, as we're collective rationality, actually that's sometimes built on individual irrationality, because people, by being maybe emotionally, as it might seem, overcommitted to certain ways of thinking, they can explore that. that motivates them to explore the absolute limits of what you can do with that research program, what it can explain and what it yeah. can't. And that way we actually get to find out what its real limitations are. So, so that you know, even yeah. individual irrationality, you know, yeah. when combined you know, in, in those kind right. of ways can actually lead to some kind of collective 
yeah. rationality. My, my um, PhD supervisor, when I started out, I said, I want to argue for X or whatever. And she was like, okay. You know, in three years' time, I think what you're going to have is a really good defense of not X. <laughs> you know? Because you try so hard to defend a particular position. And if you find at the very end of that that you're not able to, what you have is like the best possible, you know, argument for the alternative, right? Um, <laughs> but then you have to stop your emotional commitment. Yeah. Um, you, so it's this complicated dance, isn't it? Exactly. You want to be invested, but you do yes. also, you don't want to just have to die, you know? But what yes. do you want? I do think one of the most impressive things that human beings can do is actually change their mind yeah yeah you know mm -hmm. e even though it's like yeah. often extremely painful you you might yeah. lose friends you might you know that because of there are all of these emotional investments and and so on but actually if you if you think about what that capacity means you know particularly if it's on the basis of good reasons you know a lengthy thought process you know weighing all of the evidence and and you know trying rationally to consider every different aspect of all of these different positions in a considered and reflective way then changing your mind is i i think like astonishing but it's mm -hmm. one of the things that makes us in a way, interesting creatures. Mm -hmm. The fact that we can actually do that, even despite all of the attachments, emotions, sunk cost, yeah. personal and pride. social cost, whatever, pride, yeah, yeah, you know. I mean, in a way, that's sort of brilliant, isn't it? Like, Absolutely, yeah. You know, it's emotionally I, very mature. Yeah, right? and, and, yes. and, that, I, that, and even sort of becoming ambivalent about things that you formerly were very sort of straightforward about is also very interesting too. And I think that's more a kind of psychoanalytic question in a way, but it is a question of maturity. It's being able to hold at least two competing ideas, or as Keats would say, in your mind at once. But you know, like it's it's being able to see things from multiple perspectives. And I think you get that idea in Nietzsche of perspectivism that actually truth, if it's anything, is is as many uh, different truths as possible being held together. You know, that's what strength is: it's the capacity to see things in all of these different ways at once without being weak uh, and going for one of them. So the tree is is a chemical scientific object. It's also a poetic object. It's also a kind of somewhere where birds live. You know, it's it's all of those things at once. There's something kind of very, I don't know, majestic about the mind that it can do that, I think. And it is a sign of maturity, isn't it? Because I think when you're young, you tend to tie your identity so much in with your beliefs that if you were to change your beliefs, it would somehow threaten your identity. And I think perhaps... I don't believe in identity, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole new debate. Yeah. Right, thank you very much indeed to Sophie, Tim, Nina, and to everyone who came. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.